Let us pray. Father, we do rejoice this day. We rejoice in you. We rejoice this day in the gift of your son. We especially remember that after his baptism, he entered into battle with Satan in the wilderness on our behalf. And as a new Adam, the head of a new human race, he defeated the tempter and made way for the establishment of his kingdom. Oh, Father, we praise you for in your son, we have new life and victory as well. In him, we have forgiveness and vindication. In him, we have the hope of glory and the promise that all things will be renewed. Help us, O Lord, to enter fully into the life that Christ has called us to in His Gospel, the life of the cross. Help us to learn to mortify the desires of the flesh and to commit ourselves anew to living lives of repentance. And so today, Father, we worship You through Your Son and in the power of Your Holy Spirit, one God from all eternity to all eternity. Amen. This morning we are beginning a new series uh, in the preaching. I will be preaching from the epistle of James uh, in the New Testament. And uh, so this morning I want to introduce that. Uh, I want to uh, read for us now the first eight verses of James. We won't be looking really specifically at these verses. I'll be doing background uh, to the book to, to try to frame our uh, study of the book, but these verses will help us. So this is James 1, verses 1 to 8. Here again, the Word of God. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of who you are and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ through this letter from James. Father, he was writing to an audience in the distant past and yet he speaks to us today because this letter is inspired by your Spirit. It is part of your living and active word, a two-edged sword, to cut us to the very heart. May it do so. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to become better disciples, more faithful followers of Jesus through our study of this letter. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. The letter of James has always been somewhat controversial in the church. James has a rather rocky history uh, as uh, a part of the New Testament. In the early church, there were at least a few who doubted its place in uh, the canon of Scripture. Of course, it's well known at the time of the Reformation that Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw, uh, a letter made out of straw. When he made that remark, Luther was actually comparing James to 
Paul's epistles, which, of course, Luther greatly preferred. For him, the epistles of Paul were something like a canon within the canon, and everything was judged uh, by Paul's epistles, and he saw James as coming up short. For Martin Luther, the letter of James seemed moralistic, uh, perhaps even legalistic. The letter hardly mentions Christ, does not mention Christ's death and resurrection at all. So how could anyone argue that this letter proclaims the gospel? Luther said that the doctrine of justification by works that uh, James chapter 2 teaches stands in sharp tension with Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone in Romans and in Galatians. And indeed, Luther at one point said that he would uh, give his scholar's cap to anyone who could harmonize James and Paul on justification. Now, it needs to be said that Luther eventually softened in his criticisms of James. In fact, that uh, paragraph where he calls it a letter of straw in his preface to the New Testament was taken out by Luther himself in later editions of his preface to the New Testament. And uh, actually, uh, Luther did try to reconcile Paul and James on justification, perhaps earning his scholar's cap back because he didn't do uh, a, a bad job of that. It actually has a number of insights in how to bring James and Paul together. But Luther's claims notwithstanding, the letter of James is actually very necessary. It's necessary to the church. It was in the first century, and it is today. James fits very neatly into the canon of Scripture, and indeed it does proclaim the gospel. Now, that's not James' main focus, Rather, what he's really focused on is the whole way of life that flows out of the gospel. But if you read this book rightly, you will see it is drenched and soaked and saturated with the grace of God. This is a book not of moralism, but of wisdom. It has a great deal in common with the Old Testament wisdom literature. It is, you could say, New Covenant wisdom literature, a New Covenant Proverbs, if you will. And so James actually fits very well in the canon of Scripture and in the New Testament. And I I think that we'll see that. I think we'll see why this letter is so necessary, so helpful to the church as we work our way through it in the months to come. Today what I want us to do is start to get to know this letter by getting to know its author and its audience. If we can understand the author, who it was, and why he wrote what he wrote, and the audience who he was addressing, if we can really grasp the context and the themes here, it will help us a great deal as we go through the particulars of this letter. Uh, There's actually a lot of debate over who wrote this letter. That's one of the reasons why some, even in the early church, doubted its canonicity. Which James is this? He only identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus. Who is this James? Well, there are a number of different James, a number of different men in the New Testament who go by that name. Uh, which one is it? Uh, it seems that there are three candidates. There is James, the son of Alphaeus, who is one of the twelve apostles, but who hardly gets mentioned in the rest of the New Testament, and therefore isn't a very likely candidate. In fact, if he were the author of this letter, we would have expected him to do something else to identify himself, because he would not have been well-known enough otherwise. There is James, the son of Zebedee, and the brother of John, who was one of the twelve apostles. We read about Jesus calling him to be an apostle uh, in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Uh, He was 
martyred by Herod in Acts chapter 12 in 44 BC, but up until that point was a very prominent leader in the church, a well-known leader in the church who would have needed no further introduction. He simply could have called himself James and everyone would have identified it as him. And then there is James, the brother of Jesus, who was not one of the twelve, but who eventually did become a leader in the church, a leader in the church uh, in Jerusalem, who actually presided over the uh, council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. In fact, it's very interesting. James, the son of Zebedee, is murdered. He's murdered in Acts chapter 12. And when he dies, another James is raised up to take his place. James the just. James the brother of Jesus. And he becomes the leader, even the bishop it seems, of the church in Jerusalem. And just a side note here, the fact that he is the brother of Jesus, he's really the half-brother of Jesus, but that tells you that Mary did not remain perpetually a virgin. She and Joseph had normal marital relations and other children uh, after the birth of Jesus. And one of them was James, James the Just, as he became known. Now, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, or James the Just, is the most common suggestion for authorship. But I would say that he is said to be the author because of a myth. In fact, I would say it's really part of a much larger myth. It is the myth that the New Testament books, the books that make up our New Testament, were written decades after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's a very common myth. It's one that's uh, very widespread in scholarship, not just liberal scholarship, but even conservative scholarship. But it is a myth. It's not based on good evidence. Uh, Actually, I think you can make a very compelling case that all the books of the New Testament were written before 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed, just as Jesus had prophesied. That's when the apostolic age, if you want to call it that, ended. That's when God sealed up vision and prophecy, not giving any new revelation after that. So the writing of the books that make up our New Testament are much earlier than many scholars suppose. And indeed, I would I would argue, uh, and will argue at least briefly here in a moment, that the writing of the New Testament started very briefly after the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so Matthew, whose gospel seems to be first, Matthew wrote his gospel most likely not long after Pentecost, in the early 30s, early to mid-30s uh, of the first century. Uh, think about it. Jews had always been people of the book, And every time God had acted in their midst, God had also raised up an inspired author to make a written record of what God had done, always about the same time. If there were some Jews who believed that the Messiah had actually come and accomplished his great redemption, it is simply inconceivable that they would not have made a written record of it to be published for the people as soon as possible. Why would they wait around decades to write a book about this when they are the people of the book? They believe that God's climactic action in history has happened. They're not going to wait a really long time to start writing it down. No doubt Matthew, as a tax collector, was literate and was a good note-taker. It was common for students of rabbis to take notes uh, when their teacher was uh, was speaking. 
Uh, he would have been a, a good record keeper, so no doubt he kept records during Jesus' earthly ministry, which then he turned into his gospel again shortly after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, people have noticed a lot of similarities between James and Matthew. Matthew's gospel and James go together. There's a lot of overlap in their content. In fact, it seems that James was written as a companion to Matthew's gospel, to go along with Matthew's gospel, to apply Matthew's gospel to a certain set of circumstances. If Matthew was written very early, it makes sense to say that James was as well. And the only James who is really prominent that early is James, the son of Zebedee. He is the most logical candidate uh, as the author of this book. Again, he was one of the 12 apostles. He was there with Jesus. Not only as Jesus did all his teaching, but for all the big events of Jesus' ministry, he was there at Pentecost. Uh, this is the James who was part of Jesus' inner circle along with Peter and John. Why is James, this James, the best candidate for the authorship of the letter? I think the key piece of evidence is found right there in the first verse. It's that term diaspora, or in a lot of translations, it will be uh, translated as scattered. The scattered 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel that have been scattered or dispersed abroad. James says he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, the 12 tribes of Israel that have been scattered abroad. It's interesting to note that uh, James is the same name as Jacob. Um, I've, I've pointed that out to you before. So James is a new covenant Jacob. In Genesis 49, as we read this morning, Jacob prophesies over the 12 tribes of Israel. He gathers the 12 tribes to himself and prophesies over them. He speaks to them. Now what you have with this letter is a new Jacob who is prophesying to the scattered 12 tribes of Israel. For Jacob in Genesis, they're gathered to him and he prophesies to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the 12 tribes have been scattered and the new Jacob prophesies over them. That's what this letter really is. In fact, it's interesting. Some, uh, if, if you... Uh, look at the letter structurally, you'll find it's got 12 sections. And I haven't figured out how this works, but perhaps the 12 sections of the letter uh, actually match up with the 12 tribes of Israel. It'd be interesting to look at that in more detail and see if that can somehow be made to work. But James says he's writing to the scattered tribes of Israel. So we can ask which James, and we can also ask which tribes. Who are these 12 tribes of the diaspora. Well, it's very interesting. In Matthew 19.28, Jesus says that his disciples will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And there it seems the 12 tribes are really the church, the new Israel. The apostles will rule over this new Israel, the 12 tribes of the new Israel, the church. The same kind of language is used in Luke 22, where again it seems the 12 tribes are a reference to the church. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. And indeed, throughout the New Testament, we find that the church has inherited the names and the titles and the promises and the mission that God gave to Israel. The church is a new Israel. But I think we can even go further than that and make this more specific. 
The book of Acts helps this, helps us understand this. The book of Acts, of course, is the record of, uh, the early church. And Acts helps us understand the historical situation into which James sent his letter. And I think even helps us date it rather precisely within a pretty tight range. Think about what happens in the book of Acts. In Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven. In Acts 2, you have Pentecost, 50 days after his resurrection. Uh, Pentecost happens in Jerusalem as the Holy Spirit is poured out with flames of fire and a rushing wind. And Peter preaches the gospel and 3,000 people are converted on the spot. And so immediately this Christian movement, the Christian church, is up and running. It's substantial from Pentecost on. In chapter 4, Peter and John are dragged before the Sanhedrin who help put Jesus to death and certainly don't like those who are preaching that Jesus is actually the Messiah. And so the Sanhedrin tells Peter and John to stop preaching, stop preaching this gospel, stop preaching Jesus as the Christ. And this is the beginning of the Jewish persecution of the church. You've got Jewish leaders who are persecuting church leaders. You've got unbelieving Jews who are persecuting believing Jews. Everybody's Jewish at this point. No Gentiles are involved in the church at this point. But you've got these, these Jewish believers in Christ as, uh, in Jesus as the Christ. And then you've got these Jewish leaders who are seeking to stop them. And that becomes a theme all throughout the book of Acts. Jewish persecution of the church. It happens again in chapter 5. The Jewish leaders attack the apostles, this time throwing them into prison. But the Lord miraculously opens the prison doors at night. And so they're able to escape. There's, he delivers them from prison. But then the Jewish leaders round them up again. And this time they beat them. In chapter 7, uh, the Jews put Stephen to death because he preached the gospel to them in a rather convicting way. And so now the question is, what will these early Christians do? Many of these Christians realize that they've got to leave Jerusalem. The persecution's getting too intense. And so Acts 1 opens this way. This is Acts 8.1. Saul consented to Stephen's death. That's Saul who we later know as Paul. Saul consented to Stephen's death. And a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered or dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So what happens? Because of this persecution of Jews against the church, they scatter, they leave Jerusalem, they're dispersed abroad, except for the apostles. Acts 8.4 says those who were scattered, again the diaspora, went everywhere preaching the word. Now that term in Acts 8 for the scattering or the dispersion of Christians, that's the same term that James uses here in the opening verse of his letter. This is who he's writing to. This is the context. This is the situation. And understand, all of this happens perhaps within a few months of Pentecost, at most a couple of years after Pentecost. It happens very soon. It happens very quickly. The Christian diaspora is the scattering of Jewish Christians in response to persecution from their unbelieving brothers and sisters. Their fellow Jews were their persecutors. 
And they realized, we've got to get out of Jerusalem. And so the 12 tribes of the new Israel, so to speak, are scattered abroad. Matthew's Gospel had already been written. Perhaps they take Matthew's Gospel with them. That's what they're preaching from everywhere they go. But now they need another letter to give them instruction now that they're not in regular, constant contact with the apostles themselves. It's interesting also, you can, if you keep reading in James chapter 1, he calls the recipients of this letter the first fruits in verse 18, which again suggests these are the very first Christians, the very first people to be converted to new covenant faith. This is the earliest Christians, these are the earliest Christians, the earliest of the early church, the first converts of the new age, the first fruits of the ministry of the gospel. And so I think we can say this letter was written sometime, sometime between Acts 8-1, when that dispersion happened, and Acts 12, when James the son of Zebedee is murdered, when he's put to death by Herod in 44 A.D. So it's, it's sometime between Acts 8-1 and Acts 12 where he is martyred. Uh, but I think we can get even more precise in our dating of this letter. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is converted. He's a Roman centurion. He's a God-fearer. He trusts in the God of Israel, but he's not an Israelite. He's a Gentile. And Peter goes and ministers to him. And this was a big deal. Peter needed a vision from God before he would actually go to minister to a Gentile in this way because Gentiles had always been regarded unclean in the only Judaism that Peter knew. And he carried that baggage with him even into his role as an apostle in the church. But God says to go, to take the gospel to Cornelius, to his household. And Cornelius is converted to new covenant faith and comes into the church and it begins the Gentiles streaming into the church in mass. And we know that creates a new set of problems because now Jewish and Gentile believers, Jewish and Gentile Christians are going to have to learn how to get along in the same church body. They're going to have to learn how to, how, how to, how to mix together, how to harmonize their different views on things or different practices and customs on things. And this becomes such a big deal that the first church council is called to deal with this issue in Acts chapter 15. James, the son of Zebedee, Zebedee is dead at this point. This is where James, the brother of Jesus, becomes prominent, where he enters into the story and takes center stage at this Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. When James falls, another takes his place. And the council ends up writing a letter that comes from James himself. This is the letter that James, the brother of Jesus, actually does write. And this letter declares that Gentiles, as Gentiles, can come into the church. They don't need circumcision. They don't need to abide by Jewish customs. By faith in Christ alone, they can come into the church. And, they're to, and they can live faithfully as God's people and ought to be accepted as faithful members of God's people, even without those badges or markers of Jewish identity. Gentiles don't have to become Jewish in order to be saved. That's the big issue there. Gentiles as Gentiles can be justified and redeemed. Now, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you find that so much in the New Testament is dealing with just this issue. How Jews and Gentiles can get along with one another in Christ in the church. 
The fact that the letter of James does not say anything about the Jew-Gentile controversy is another sign that it's very early. In fact, I would say sometime after Acts 8.1, when the dispersion happens, and before Acts 10, when Cornelius comes into the church and you start to have a huge influx of Gentiles into the church. And just to point out the kind of thing this would mean, uh, this means that uh, James did not write chapter 2 on justification in response to Paul or to correct Paul. In fact, Paul might not even have been a Christian yet at the time James is writing. And so Luther's fears about some kind of contradiction uh, between James and Paul are simply unfounded. James' main concern in writing his letter is to help these first converts, these Jewish Christians, deal with Jewish persecution. That's the context. That's what's happening. In fact, I think the examples that uh, James chooses later on in the letter fit well with this historical context. Think about James chapter 2, just again, giving you an example of how this all fits together. In James chapter 2, he points to two great illustrations of how the faith that justifies is a working faith. And he points to Abraham, when Abraham was willing to go and sacrifice his son Isaac, and he points to Rahab when she hid the spies and sent them out the other way. Well, these are precisely the kinds of situations that these Jewish Christians are facing. These are the most relevant illustrations you can imagine. These are Christians whose children might very well be in danger because of their faith in Jesus. Their children might very well be sacrificed to Jesus as martyrs if the Jews get their hands on them. Imagine that Stephen's mother might have felt this way. She lost her son because he became a Christian and believed in Jesus as Messiah. She knew what it was like to be Abraham and to have to give up your only son to the Lord. They might have to, these Christians might have to hide their fellow Christians from their persecutors, even at great personal risk to themselves, the way Rahab did, even wisely making use of righteous deception as a tool. Think about what Rahab does. She hides the spies, sends them out, and deceives the king of Jericho. That's regarded as a great act of faithfulness on her part in that situation. Well, think of Christians in the book of Acts who helped Paul escape the city of Damascus by letting him down out of a window in a basket. It's kind of a Rahab-like action. Hiding one of the leaders of the church and sending him out the other way when people are out to get him. It's the same kind of thing. The illustrations that James uses in James chapter 2 fit this historical context. In fact, go back and think about this situation described in Acts that led to the diaspora, the scattering abroad of Christians. These Jewish Christians were under attack. They were being beaten and jailed, even murdered. If you face those kinds of attacks, if we as a church faced those kinds of attacks, how would we be tempted to respond? When you are attacked violently, when, 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 if you're attacked violently, how are you tempted to respond? You're tempted to respond with violence in turn. And James deals with precisely 
that temptation. In James chapter 1, he says he wants them to endure their trials, especially the trials of being persecuted, joyfully. To count it as joy when they endure this kind of persecution. To not lash out in anger, but to joyfully endure this kind of persecution. He recognizes they need wisdom to figure out how to respond to this kind of persecution. When do you let somebody down out of a window in a basket? And, and, and when do you simply face the persecution and, 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 and endure what they want to do to you? Paul James here says you've got to pray for wisdom. In chapter 1, verse 20, we find they're tempted to think that anger at their persecutors can accomplish God's purposes. They're angry, no doubt, just like we would be angry if any of our members, any members of our church body were violently attacked for their Christian faith. But James says, your anger will not accomplish God's purposes. Your anger is not going to bring in God's kingdom. Your anger is not going to stop this persecution. It will just escalate it. In chapter 4, James speaks of Jews who have gone to war with one another, who have murdered one another, who are fighting with each other. These are the very things they're tempted to turn to. And I would say we see the same thing in our own day. Uh, There are certainly some, I think, who are tempted to resort to violence to do what they think is the Lord's work. But retaliation against persecutors... Violence and anger cannot bring in the kingdom. No matter how great the crisis becomes, no matter how great the persecution becomes, violence and anger and retaliation, revenge, cannot bring in the kingdom of God. And that's what James wants them to see. James is writing especially to He identifies them as the brothers. It seems to be the leaders, the leadership of these scattered Christian communities, the leaders of the 12 tribes of the Christian diaspora. So they will remember what they should have learned in Matthew's Gospel. So that they will remember the way of Christ, the way of the Gospel, the way of the cross. So here's... I think a good working hypothesis for how to approach the book of James, the letter of James. It was written by James, the son of Zebedee, who had been with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, who was one of the twelve, indeed who was one of the inner circle of the three, and who emerged as a leader in the church in Jerusalem after Pentecost. He wrote this letter to Jewish Christians. The church is almost exclusively Jewish at this point. Before the Gentiles start to come in, he writes his letter to encourage these Jewish Christians who have been scattered away from Jerusalem because of persecution to endure, to not resort to violence, to not use the same kind of violence against their persecutors their persecutors are using against them. And so the letter seems to have been written in the early to mid-30s of the first century to provide wisdom and direction to these suffering Christians. And indeed, it's a lesson that James himself had to learn. James and John were known as the sons of thunder because they had a lot of zeal. They were zealots. And they had thought long and hard about bringing in the kingdom of God by force. That's what they would have recommended until Jesus taught them otherwise. You even see that as they interact with Jesus in the Gospels. This is something they have to learn. That leadership among the people of God is not exercised the way the Gentiles exert leadership by force, but rather it's through service and through love. 
James, the son of thunder, had to learn the way of the cross. And now he's got to remind these other Jewish Christians of the way of the cross as well. The way Jesus taught in Matthew's gospel and especially in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, James reminds these Christians of letter of, of lessons in Matthew's gospel. He applies Matthew's gospel to the particulars of their situation. And he is especially taking the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7, and he is applying it to their situation, their circumstances as scattered Christians, a tiny minority facing persecution. Almost everything in James' letter traces back to Matthew's Gospel and especially to the Sermon on the Mount. Just a few examples of this. We'll look at these more as we go, but just consider a few of these. You have the theme of joy in the midst of trial and testing in James 1. That's also there in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, Rejoice if you're counted worthy of persecution for the name." The theme of perfection or maturity is in Matthew 5. It's also there in James 1. The generosity of God, especially to those in need, is found in Matthew 7. It's also found in James chapter 1. The call to suspend anger or to control anger or set anger aside is found in Matthew 5. It's also found in James chapter 1. The call to be not merely a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word is seen in James chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 7. The demand to do all of the law is there in Matthew chapter 5. It's also in James chapter 2. But it's interesting. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is the one who fulfills the law. In James chapter 2, we are the ones who are called to fulfill the law. You have the call to mercy, to show mercy, that those who show mercy will be shown mercy themselves in Matthew chapter 5 and also in James chapter 2. You have the theme of not judging in a self-righteous way. In James chapters, in James chapter 4 and also in Matthew chapter 7. You have teaching on oaths and the danger of unnecessary oaths in Matthew chapter 5 and in James chapter 5. Again, in almost every section of James' letter, you can trace it back to Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. James takes that message of Jesus, that sermon of Jesus, he reminds them of it, he applies it to their situation, he expands its scope in new ways perhaps they hadn't thought of. See, what is the letter of James really about? The letter of James is about growing in wisdom and growing to maturity through enduring trials faithfully. It is about disciples of Jesus becoming more like Jesus by sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. That was the message of James in the first century. I would say it's really the message of James for us. This is a book of practical Christian living, especially geared towards Christians who are in the midst of trial and cultural crisis and persecution. It's a book that forms us and trains us as disciples. James reminds us belief is not enough. Right belief is not enough. There must be right living as well. It's not enough to assent to the right things. You have to live it out in your day-to-day life. James is a call to true faith. 
to the kind of action that follows from that faith. James is a call to a working, living faith that will be vindicated at the last day. James gives us wisdom. James' goal is to impart wisdom to the church. James has been called the New Testament's Proverbs because it reads like a piece of wisdom literature and it really is a book of wisdom. James is a book of wisdom. Wisdom that is from above. It's full of catchy aphorisms, catchy sayings, just like the wisdom literature. You can think of James as a new Solomon training God's newborn sons how to live and grow in wisdom so they might come to reign as kings in Christ. But not only is James like another Solomon imparting wisdom to these newborn Christians that they might grow to maturity and learn how to reign as kings, James is like a prophet. James is like one of the prophets of old. He's like one of the old covenant prophets warning the people of God, calling them to persevere in the faith and to care for the needy. His language again and again echoes Isaiah and Hosea and Ezekiel. He brings Elijah into the picture. He's a prophet. He's a prophet like his namesake, Jacob. James has been called the last book of the Old Testament. It's got such an Old Testament feel to it. And yes, it has roots in Matthew's Gospel, but behind that it has deep roots in the Hebrew Scriptures. To drink at James' well is to take in the whole of Scripture. But in all of this, as as we think about all the different practical lessons that are here in James' letter, we must not lose sight of the truth that James is Gospel. James is redemptive Scripture. Not just Scripture, but redemptive Scripture. James is eschatological, to use the big term. James is a herald of the new age and the new covenant Jesus has ushered in. James is an apostle of the kingdom. It's true, James only mentions Jesus two times. And one there is in the opening verse when he says he's a servant of Jesus. There's only one other mention of Jesus by name. And he never explicitly mentions the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he barely even alludes to the Holy Spirit. And that's why some have wondered, how is this a Christian book? What's Christian about this? But if you read it rightly, that is to say, if you read it as a companion volume to Matthew's Gospel, you will see it is really drenched and soaked with God's grace with the forgiving and transforming grace of the Gospel, with the new creation-bringing, kingdom-bringing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fine to say that James is a book of ethics. That's what some have wanted to do. Oh, this is, this is a little piece of Christian ethics, or maybe uh, not even fully Christian ethics, but a book of ethics dropped into the New Testament. That, that doesn't really capture it. It is a book of ethics, certainly. But it's ethics rooted in Jesus. Ethics rooted in the cross. It's ethics rooted in the new birth he describes later in chapter 1. This new birth that gives rise to a new way of life. It's an ethic for the new creation, for the new covenant people of God. It's not an ethic tied to the law of Moses, but tied to the law of Jesus. The transformed Torah, the transformed law. James describes it as the law of perfect liberty. 
He calls it a law for the mature, a law that fits with the freedom we have in Christ in the new age. Indeed, in chapter 2, he also calls it the royal law. The law of Moses is never called the royal law. This is the law of the kingdom. It is the law of King Jesus, and it is the law appropriated, the law transformed for our new situation, for our status as kings in union with him. Royal people need a royal law. That's what we'll find in James. A law that we fulfill by faith as God's new Israel, as his royal priesthood. The letter of James is so important because it takes us back to the very roots of our faith. It's written by one of the patriarchs of the new Israel during the earliest days of the Christian church. It takes us back to the very beginning, just like we, you know, we want to know something about the founders of our country and we need to know something about their lives to know how to rightly interpret their writings. So it is here. This takes us back to our roots as the new covenant people of God. But it doesn't just take us back. It also launches us forward into the new age. It propels us into the new covenant, into the kind of new covenant life God calls us to live. James, like Matthew's Gospel, is full of treasures. Full of treasures old and new. Treasures waiting for us to discover if we only seek them out. Treasures for us to enjoy. And I trust we will as we go through this book together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for raising up Your servant, the servant of the Lord Jesus, Your servant James, to give us this letter. What a magnificent letter it is. Father, may we glean wisdom from it. May we learn from it how to be more faithful disciples of Jesus. May we learn how to live wisely even in the midst of cultural crisis. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through this book today and continually as we look at it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.